At the University of Arizona Bio5 Institute, we are focused on tackling complex challenges such as disease, hunger, water and food safety, and other health and environmental issues facing our families, communities, and the world. Bio5 brings together hundreds of multifaceted experts that include world-class scientists, engineers, physicians, and computational researchers in a team science environment designed to creatively solve difficult problems. This approach has resulted in disease prevention strategies, promising new therapies, innovative diagnostics and devices, and improved food crops. Join us each week as we talk about science with researchers, staff, and students from the University of Arizona's Bio5 Institute. Hello, welcome to another episode of Science Talks, a conversation hosted by the University of Arizona's Bio5 Institute. I'm Brooke Moreno. And I'm Lisa Romero. Today, we're talking with Dr. Taylor Edwards, Clinical Manager and Development Scientist for the University of Arizona Genetics Corps, UAGC as you might hear it. Um, and Dr. Edwards is really known about his role in transdisciplinary research. What is transdisciplinary research? defined as researchers from different disciplines working together to create new conceptual, theoretical, methodological, and translational innovations that integrate and move beyond discipline-specific approaches to address common problems. Today, this method of research is widely used among researchers, professors, professionals, and students alike. Dr. Edwards, in his role, oversees clinical validation, workflow implementation, and daily processing for COVID diagnostics and antibody testing services. Dr. Edwards himself is an educator, researcher, and so much more as I'm starting to learn. So Dr. Edwards, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So doing the research here to learn more about you, you've got a lot of interest. You play a lot of roles around here. Um, if BioFive had a poster child, it would be you. <laughs> really in all the ways you're involved. Um, you've worked in many areas. Um, that require collaboration and have created opportunities that wouldn't have been thought of in just working alone in a silo. So in the research, we found you're a herpetologist, geneticist, lab manager, conservation biologist, educator, an expert for National Geographic, and an artist. So what drew you to your current career and role, um, your interest in transdisciplinary work, and what spurred that on so, so many years ago? Well, when I started, I have to say there was no such thing as transdisciplinary um, science. It's something that's sort of come up. For me, I feel it's a, a goal to try to achieve, um, not something that you necessarily start out doing. But as I've worked over the years, I realized that the more people I have on my team with different perspectives and different ideas, actually the better we can do applied science and get it to more people and get more people involved. So my own route started you know, with my own interests and wanting to do the things I wanted to do, but found that I had much more power and more success through collaboration. Oh, very cool. And what were those interests? What did you want to do all those many years ago? Sure. Well, I, I kind of feel like I had two parts of my career, first starting out working with wildlife and wildlife biology. I think the thing that first brought me into it was volunteering at a zoo when I was starting in high school and wanting to <laughs> save endangered species through captive breeding programs. 
Wow. Um, I got my degree in zoology and my first job outside of my undergraduate was actually at the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum, where I did get to uh, work with the Mexican wolf reintroduction program and things like that myself. Um, I then decided I wanted to do more science and that's what drew me into actually field biology and I've done radio telemetry studies with rattlesnakes and tortoises and herpetological inventories and things of that nature. And I started asking questions during that time that would allow me, um, I started having questions I should say that I couldn't answer just by being out in the field with animals. Um, that's when I first started working with genetics and came back to the U of A for my master's program. And there was no um, genetics program in the natural resources department at that time. And I stumbled upon what was then the LMSE, but is now the UAGC, a genetics core, where I could actually learn these techniques and apply them to my own work as a master's student. Wow, that's, I, I, uh, that's fascinating. <laughs> I, in high school, I was just hoping to like uh, win my basketball game. So <laughs> that's that's incredibly impressive, and uh, that shows I think through the trajectory of your work. Um, I want to ask a to have you help us with a little bit of a technical question because I think um, we in academia and science love our acronyms very much, but yes. not everybody knows what those acronyms are. So we're, we're throwing around UAGC, U, U, University mm -hmm. of Arizona Genetics Corps. Could you just give me, before we kind of go on with you and, and get more into detail on your work, um, give us a little snapshot of sort of what the main goals of that, in, you know, that, that institute within the university, within a setting like Bio5, we call it a core service, what that actually means, I think, for the university and for our state? Lisa, that's a great question. Core facilities are a, a group that's able to actually help facilitate the research that goes on both within the U of A institution and outside of it, even for industry and things like that. We run the, um, expensive instruments that do DNA sequencing and genome sequencing. And we have the expertise and the, the technicians that are able to do that and help researchers with those kinds of problems. So we get people coming to us who are experts in their field and they may wanna add a genetic component to their research, but maybe they haven't worked with genetics directly before, or maybe they don't know which actually is the right platform in order to do their research studies with. Um, so they may come to us with that kind of question and we're able to actually help them. It's not necessary for every lab to have a $500,000 instrument to do this kind of stuff, whereas a core facility, we can have a specialist running that instrument for 100 different labs, essentially generating data, um, you know, all of the time that helps generate the research, regenerate the data that our research use here at the University of Arizona and outside of the university as well. My coming to the lab as a, as a tortoise researcher who had never worked with DNA before, it was great to find a place where I could actually learn how to do this and have those kinds of applications. Uh, that's really, yeah, that, that's really helpful. I think again, um, you know, we, we throw around our, you know, you, we're research one university and, you mm -hmm. know, we do billions of dollars of research. And I think nobody, you know, from the outside necessarily realizes the infrastructure the services, the equipment, the, the specific expertise with equipment and 
on um, those types of specialty areas that you know a university needs to to achieve those things. It's not just the scientists; it's really those people that back up the scientists, and and I, you know that's what you and your team do. And um, you know, I think uh, you probably seen, and maybe could talk to this a little bit in your years. Um, at the university with UAGC, the changes to technology, to the um, ability of, of equipment to facilitate cutting edge research, I can't imagine sort of the, the changes that have taken place there. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that, uh, how you, you know, seen technology evolve and then how maybe that enabled you all to be intimately involved with the um, COVID-19 research efforts and all that your lab was able to contribute to our university response because of that. It is such a fast moving technology, uh, biotechnology. Um, and I think that's one of the things that's kept me interested so long. I, I honestly felt when I first started working with DNA, I was gonna answer a few questions about tortoises and then I'd go back in the field and you know just follow my tortoises around some more. But in reality, I all of a sudden had a new set of tools that allowed me to ask new questions that I never even thought was possible. So around that time, 2000 is when I entered my master's program. That's right when they announced the first draft of the human genome. That took 10 years to do. And I was just looking at you know simple molecular markers and tortoises for the first time. Never in my life did I think we'd have tortoise genomes, but now I'm an author on some tortoise genomes as well. The technology has changed that far in those amount of years. Um, I think that kind of allowed me to be so interested in it by being able to ask new questions. And as that, um, as that technology changed, I found myself wanting to keep up with it because there's a whole new world of things to answer. So I actually ended up doing my doctorate program while an employee of UAGC of the genetics core, because I was continuing to do my own research on tortoises. And I realized I need to apply this new technology to my own research, but I also have to learn the best ways to do it and um, form a, a committee of, of um, again, my advisors to, to help to do that. So that's actually what made me jump into my, my doctorate program was actually to be able to apply some of these new technologies like that. Um, it's one of those things as we were talking about what is a core facility, I also think that's kept me interested because, um, and it also goes right along with collaboration. When you work in a core facility, it's not just necessarily the stuff that you're interested in, but you're working with researchers from health sciences, from life sciences, from public health, from anything like that, that come to ask questions that we can help facilitate. So over the course of a day, I might be working with a student who wants to do environmental sampling to look at fish DNA in a freshwater lake. And then the next thing I'm doing is developing a clinical test to monitor bone marrow engraftments. So it's pretty amazing, but it's all DNA. It's all using the same basis for understanding and then applying it to lots and lots of different questions. Oh, that is remarkable. That is remarkable. And, and I love how you framed it that this new and developing technology allows you to ask more questions. You mm -hmm. know, in my mind, and I think in a lot of um, non-scientist minds, you think technology is developed to answer existing questions, to solve current problems, but that innovation just creates a platform for more opportunity. And your team has been so successful at providing these services. 
I think because you all think that way likely. And what can we do with this, not just to solve current questions, but to create more questions. And I think that's, that's amazing. And probably what led to part of your team being the recipient of the 2021 University of Arizona Team Award for Excellence, um, or specifically in your engagement with the COVID-19 testing team. So can you talk more about how your team really pivoted to work with the pandemic? And what was your role in this, in this integration? Sure. Well, I'm, I'm the, I want to say, first of all, that it is a team award for excellence because it truly took a, a team to do this. And I had my part in it, which is um, I'm the clinical lab manager here at the UAGC. And we've actually been a CAP accredited uh, CLIA facility for about eight years. So we do clinical testing, which just means we generate molecular results, DNA results that apply directly to, to patients so that physicians can use that information in the treatment or diagnosis for those patients. So we were already a, a facility able to do these kinds of things. And when the pandemic started early in 2020, um, our laboratory director, Ryan Sprissler, um, and I kind of put together a letter to our administration saying, hey, we know this is kind of something that's out there. We're not sure what's going to happen with it, but here's the things that we can do. Here's our capabilities. And then, you know, nobody was quite sure what to do, but then by the end of March, it was like, can you guys start doing this for us? Because <laughs> we're in a real emergency here. And so that's when we first started to develop our uh, real-time PCR assay for uh, COVID diagnosis, the viral test. Um, that was amazing to do, especially when we were sometimes working remotely, but also needing to run samples in the lab. And it was an odd time because our biggest challenge was getting positive samples because it was new and we were working with other facilities, collab collaborating with other institutions in order, order to get those samples so that we could validate our own laboratory developed test for, uh, for the COVID testing. That then led to also doing antibody testing for the lab. We have amazing expertise here at the University of Arizona. We've been able to work with immunologists who are specialists in this kind of thing and using their laboratories, um, ELISA assays that they've developed, we were able to also turn that into a clinical test and continue doing ELISA antibody testing for the whole state of Arizona. Mm -hmm. um, I was really fortunate because I got to work with some of the people, some of my favorite friends and, and colleagues that includes Barbara Fransway, Matthew Kaplan, who's the director of the uh, Functional Genomics Corps, uh, Barb is our clinical, as our research core uh, laboratory manager, uh, Ryan Sprissler, of course, I mentioned. We've worked together for almost 20 years, uh, all of us, plus our team of staff and everything. And we first sort of grew as a lab because we ran um, all the public testing for National Geographic and IBM's Genographic Project, where we tested over 500,000 samples over the course of are uh, working on that project. So we already had the experience of doing large through high throughput, large scale projects. We had instrumentation to do so. And then we had our own specialties, uh, Matt and Barb and Ryan and myself and the rest of our team to be able to do that within the lab. The other thing that was amazing about the COVID experience is that generally, so we've I feel a really tight group in the lab. We're able to get things done, but this was a chance for us to actually now work as a broader team with the rest of the University of Arizona campus, which included our antigen testing group in the Harris lab, 
um, our, all of our administrators, people who I had never met before who helped get the supplies we needed in a challenging time, and then facilitating it so that people could do the tests and deliver them to us using couriers and all kinds of infrastructure that way. And it made me so proud of the University of Arizona. Everybody just stepped up and did their part from the electronic systems that we do our orders and reporting through to the supply chain, to the knowledge from our scientists that are experts in this field sharing, you know, late into the nights and on weekends trying to get these things developed. Um, so it was an exciting uh, and amazing time. And it felt good during, as we all know, a, a challenging time to feel we were working towards something that was positive and would sort of help us get us through that. Yeah, I mean, on, on behalf of, uh, of humanity, much less the U of A and, and Bio5 and I mean, I know, I mean, I, you know, had the privilege of hearing sort of the grassroots effort that was going on and I know, but I know you all literally were, were sleeping in the labs. I know that, you know, it was night and day. I know that everybody literally came out of the woodwork at you at once because they thought you could help solve problems, which you did. And I think, again, it's sort of this, this point of collaboration and teamwork that really is like unique, I think here. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe it is other places, but I think that, again, we, we could put all these talking points about what we did during the pandemic out there, but it takes people. It takes mm -hmm. people like you and your team and, and the rest of the UAGC um, you know, staff uh, that are willing to sleep in their labs to you know, better um, the situation in front of us, which was pretty dire at, at many given moments. So thank you for that. And, and uh, I wanted to ask you, you, you talked about um, working with students and I think it's always fascinating to me too, is how <laughs> these students have these incredible opportunities to work in a lab like UAGC or with, with people with the knowledge and the background and just the things that you know and have learned through your own efforts. Talk a little bit about maybe how you, you know, work with students, both maybe as interns or, or staff in the lab, um, just sort of how you include that educational piece uh, as part of the mission as well. UAGC has actually always been very um, forward with mentoring and having students in the lab. I think because a lot of us, including myself, have had those experiences of, of mentorship and being a student who's had doors open for them because of, of those kinds of opportunities. Um, it's been harder as I've gotten more advanced in my position because I'm less on hands with the students and now um, I don't get to work with them one on one as much. It's always a pleasure when I get to do that. But yeah, we do have students continuing to work in the lab and unlike a normal research lab, we're, we're a production facility like we have um, things to get through and produce data. So it's a little bit different experience for, for some of the students here, um, but it does definitely open up doors that they probably didn't expect would happen. We've had so many students through the years. We have a whole poster board with all their pictures that are now covering up generations of other students on top of them uh, that have come through the lab. And it's also fun to keep in touch with them and see what they're doing now and where they've, where they've moved into. And sometimes how their career paths change as a result of that. A lot come in with they're going to be a medical doctor and they're just heading toward med school. And then they have some strange experience with uh, testing for chytridiomycosis and frogs 
And next thing you know, they're off on another route or doing traveling or things like that too. So um, again, having that collaborative experience, being exposed to more things opens more minds and, and generates more ideas and possibilities. I think too, what you just described about uh, this intersection, I think UAGC is a great example of this and, and your work within that is this intersection of science and business. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. you, UAGC is a little, it's a business, you know, and you have, you have business goals. And you, as you said, you have your production, you know, facility. And I think that's so interesting because I think people think, I want to be a scientist, you know, I want to do research. And this, you know, these types of, of sort of areas allow them to understand the business side of it too, which I think is pretty cool. Did you, did you find that in, an interesting sort of like, oh, wow, I, this isn't just about science. It's about, you know, the, again, the business side of things when you sort of started out. Um, it wasn't what I expected <laughs> I'd be kind of going into, but as I said, I've always really, I think, desired that applied element to yeah. the sort of science I do. While I uh, love and appreciate the theoretical things, I feel that I get the most reward when I've done something that can be applied, whether it's to conservation or to helping people's health or to things of that nature. And having a, a business sort of model to do that is good because it keeps you efficient in, um, in having a target and reaching that target in a, in a very defined sort of way. So I think for my personality and, and my goals, it sort of fit right in with the way a core facility operates, um, as well as um, you know, making sure that the work that, that I do as an individual gets applied to something and, and manifests into something real that, that can be put out into the world. Yeah, that's awesome. You really can bridge, bridge two worlds together, yeah. huh? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> well, much like your own personal interests, you were a young turtle scientist turned mm -hmm. geneticist and, and then a pandemic public health expert in a way. <laughs> um, but let's go back. Let's talk about that, that young turtle scientist to kind of wrap up. Mm -hmm. So the Amazon turtle diaries, tell us about this National Geographic expedition that you were selected for. Let's, what is this? Well, I've, I was fortunate enough to start doing National Geographic expedition um, programs. Um, well, again, almost for 15 years or more. Um, it sort of started out with my master's program. My master's advisor, Dr. Cecil Swaby, um, he had worked as a National Geographic expert uh, for his expertise in reptiles and amphibians. And around that time, they started doing family programs. And he said, yeah, I'd love to do that, but I have to take this um, master's student of mine because he's much better with kids. So um, that was my first expedition. We did a program in Costa Rica. And that, again, really helped having a background like I did in field biology. Um, actually, after I worked at the Desert Museum, I bought a one-way ticket to Brazil and traveled around the Amazon and really needed to see the rainforest firsthand oh, and things like, like that. It's like a TV so, show. <laughs> yeah. We got to script this. So I had had a lot of... Um, experience in the in the neotropics and, and things like that and being able to it's like teaching but your classroom is the environment when you do a program like that mm -hmm. so it's really wonderful and then fortuitously our lab I was working at the UAGC at that time after that 
and uh, we started doing National Geographic's genographic project, and it was a great way for me to continue doing them, not only with an expertise on the wildlife side of things, but also with a tie-in to National Geographic, which at the time was the largest project they had ever, um, ever done. So that way I could give presentations spanning National Geographic's role, my role with them, but also what it's like to actually be a field biologist. And on those programs, I like to set up, you know, remote cameras and those kind of things to share with, with the, the people who participate uh, what a scientist does uh, in the field to study biodiversity and those kinds of things. So the, the trips I've done to the Amazon um, are great because they really do focus on turtles, or I should say my presentations focus on turtles while we're <laughs> out there seeing all the other amazing things that the Amazon has to offer. Uh, but I've done programs for them in Ecuador and Peru and Panama and Costa Rica and Nicaragua, as well as the United States. Um, it's a great way for me to step out of the lab, um, back into nature, um, and get to share that excitement and the things that we do to uh, an audience that's there to learn and really interested. Everything from student programs with high school students, to family programs, uh, to regular adult programs where people go on, on these adventures. And then I come back so reinvigorated because often when you share what you do, you realize that um, it's pretty exciting. Um, and so it's really a nice way to come back to the lab and have a, a brand new, fresh sort of look at things. That's, yeah, that's pretty amazing. And I think, again, the, the parts of science we, we do forget it sometimes is it is about how your work impacts people and and you know what it does you know what you're what you're looking at within the environment and animal life and and you know what what those what that science means to to people and um i i love people like you that are willing to not only you know do do what needs to be done clinically and, and in a lab and to to further um clinical solutions but also um you know to to educate people and to help them see themselves in how science impacts their life and what's around them. And um, that's a really cool story. I, I just need to know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go totally off script here. Do, do you have tortoises at home? I do. Yeah. You know, in, the, in the state of Arizona, you can adopt a tortoise. Um, they're not, you don't get to own them because they're protected species, but that's there's it. a tortoise adoption program. And so I have two adopted tortoises um, at my house. That's very cool. And is, is the theory that they will outlive you? Um, they often do. The ones I adopted were for somebody that they outlived and then got put back into the adoption program. Oh my gosh. What is the, what is the age span, general age span? So uh, a captive uh, desert tortoise can live 80 years or more. In the wild, they wouldn't live necessarily that long um, due to other, other factors and, and wild settings. But yeah, they can live a long time. Oh my so gosh. it's also why I had to turn to genetics, because when you're following tortoises around to see what their movement patterns are, it could take a lifetime <laughs> to put together enough data. And that's when I realized the questions I had about them moving between mountain ranges or, or from one place to another, I couldn't answer as, as well with that kind of traditional method as actually looking at the DNA where I can look back through evolutionary time and see how frequently they've shared genes or exchanged genes across different populations. 
It's the same application we did for the geographic project, how humans have moved around the globe over our history and how they've exchanged genes and shared genes in that process. Um, so to me, they're all using the same tools to, to look at uh, different populations or different questions that way, the, the same thing. That's fascinating. Always asking, how, yeah. what other questions can you ask? Yeah. Always a learner, always a scientist, right? Well, this is fascinating. I feel like we could do a whole another episode completely tailored to your interests. Uh, but Dr. Edwards, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing about uh, UAGC, your work, your life experience, and a big thank you to returning all those favors and keeping the learning cycle going, the research um, enthusiasm for research going, and not pulling that ladder up. That's that's really inspiring. So thank you for all you do for BioFive Institute and for the university. Well, thank you both. And again, that goal of sort of transdisciplinary science is making sure that it's accessible to everybody and it gets applied in all those kinds of ways and not just in an ivory tower of academic journals. And actually being able to have you help present the science to a broader audience and in different ways, um, I think is part of that, that larger goal. So thank you both for for inviting me to do this. Thank you so much. You get embroidered on a pillow. Yeah, I was going to say, you just <laughs> took my job away from me. <laughs> you sold it. Well, you did it much better. <laughs> Said it much better. <laughs> well, thank you, Dr. Edwards. Thank you, Lisa. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us again for another episode of Science Talk. To learn more about Bio5 Institute, visit us at bio5.org. And from all of us at Bio5 Institute, we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you to our audience for tuning in to another episode of Science Talks. Continue the conversation with us next time as we learn more about the science happening at the University of Arizona's Bio5 Institute.